Um, Erin Harned, are you in here? Erin? I forgot to acknowledge Erin. She's our graduate this year, right? Yes. yes. Graduated early, correct? Yes. This is a, a card from uh, New Hope to Erin. Erin, stand up so everybody can see who you are again. All right, excellent. And graduating at age 17, 16, graduating high school, did an advanced program to get it done early, so good for you. Congratulations. Um, last week in your bulletin, if you were here, you uh, received this biblical timeline that I inserted in there, and uh, there's more of these if you weren't here last week. This has a uh, timeline of everything starting from 2500 B.C. up to the point where we're at with Abram right now. So there's a, a, a brass glass table in the back in the foyer, and there's more of these stacked on there. If you did not get one last week, be sure and pick one up. It might help you in your studies as we work through the book of Genesis. Um, and also, let me uh, remind you, if you've been uh, intending to give to the building fund that we're gathering money towards of improving things around here like the carpet and the pews, there is a little box on the uh, giving envelope. If you're new here, by the way, uh, we don't have an offering during the service if this is your first or second time here. There's offering boxes in the back of the church and you can Drop your offering envelope in there if you intend to do that. But if you're giving towards the building fund, would you be sure and indicate that on that envelope? That would help a lot. I asked myself this question this week um, as I'm studying through Genesis 15. What do you give to the man who has everything? As I look at Abram, I see a man who has everything. What do you give to a man who has everything? A destiny? What do you give to a man who has everything, including a destiny, but no hope? You're going to see a man today in Genesis chapter 15 who has been given a destiny. He has everything materially. He's very, very wealthy. He has everything in the way of a promised destiny from God. God said, I will make you a great nation. All of the earth will be blessed through you. But what you see unfolding in Genesis chapter 15 is a man who has lost hope. He knows the promise is true, but he's lost hope. So if you have your Bibles, would you open it up with me to Genesis chapter 15? If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. If you're new to New Hope, you may not know that the Bibles that are in the pew rack in front of you are there for you. If you don't own your own Bible, feel free to take one of those with you. I teach out of the NASB, New American Standard. Um, what is in the pew rack is NASB, but also there's NIV, so the words may not always match up with what's up on the screen. But you can follow along that way. I came to this conclusion this week, and it's, it's my own statement. Forgive the grammatics if it's not perfectly clear. But here's what I want you to get across today. I want you to understand and take away with you. We said that we were going to learn about the nature and the character of God. It is the nature and the character of God to provide a way independent of us. To provide a way independent of our actions. Our responsibility is to believe. We're going to visit that truth through this story this morning. So join me in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. 
I am, your, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. After these things, after what things? After the fact that you might have learned last week if you were here that he had just defeated four kings from the east. Four very powerful kings who had swept through the Middle East, taking away slaves and taking away possessions. And in the nighttime, Abram snuck into their camp with 318 warriors of his own and captured his nephew Lot and all of the slaves and brought them back and defeated the kings. So after these things, after he had defeated the kings, God appeared to him and said, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Why would God need to say to him, Do not fear? Abram understood that there was a great potential for reprisal. The kings of the east did not take defeat lightly. And he was afraid, so God said, I will give you this military image. I will be your shield, your protector. Because you stepped out for me. I will be your protector. And we learned last week that Abram walked away from a great fortune. The king of Sodom offered him wonderful possessions, and he stepped away from it. Abram said, I'm not taking anything, not even a shoelace that belongs to you. So he forfeited a great fortune. So God said, not only will I be your shield, your protector, but I will also be the one who gives you great reward. You will receive great reward from me. God's saying, I'll do more than just make it up to you, Abram. I will bless you greatly. But Abram was still afraid. He was afraid that there might be an attack. And God's going to give him a reason, as you're about to see, to not have any fear. Verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. It's been my experience that even the most mature of Christians hit a very dark spot in which they're not sure if they can trust God anymore. If you're not familiar with uh, uh, thinking of his name, J. Hudson Taylor, J. Hudson Taylor led the uh, China Inland Movement back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He convinced many Christians to join him in China to serve as missionaries. What he didn't know as as missionaries from around the world joined him in China, that there was going to be an uprising called the Boxer Rebellion. And many of those individuals whom he had convinced to come to China and serve with him to win China for Christ were killed in the Boxer Rebellion. J. Hudson Taylor got to the point where he said to a friend, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray but I can trust. He was left with only the belief that God was going to bring some good out of it. This is what you see happening to Abram. There's a sense in which all hope is gone. And he's in the moment of despair. And he's saying, God, I know you're going to bless me greatly, but what good is it? 
I don't even have an heir to pass it on to. Have you ever been that honest with God? Have you ever been that honest to say, God, I am so frustrated. I, I don't even know how to express it. I have. I've had to be that honest with God. And God honors that kind of honesty. Don't bottle it up and try and keep it inside. So Abram's left with saying, what's happening to the promise? You said you were going to bless me greatly and make me a great nation. I've been here for years. Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, referring to Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Naah. Remember that word I taught you a couple weeks ago? When God uses that word naah, it's only used four times in Scripture. When God uses that word, it means something's about to happen that's bigger than any one of us can accomplish. Let's finish the verse. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Look at this word, na'ah, with me again. An action-intensive word. God doing something man cannot do beyond human comprehension. Four times, only used in the Old Testament, when God has a personal encounter with a man, and he says, I'm about to do something that is so far beyond your imagination, you can't even comprehend it. Na'ah. Remember that word. You're going to learn four Hebrew words today. Whether Abram looked down at the dust of the earth, whether he looked up at the stars of the sky now, he's going to be reminded that God is going to bless him greatly. He can't go through the daytime without looking down or the nighttime without looking up, without a reminder. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Verse 4. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, meaning God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible if you have a habit of doing that. This is the first time the word believe is ever used in the Bible. And it's the first time righteousness is ever used in the Bible. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. What you see here is the New Testament gospel being expressed in the Old Testament. There's nothing to do with the law here. He's saying, you believe in me, I count you as righteous. I want you to understand this word believe here. Because when we say we believe in God, even an agnostic would say, I believe in God. Even the demons believe in God. Look at James James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now the word picture there is, that's the shudder. The demons believe in God and they don't even want to hear his name. The demons shudder at the mention of God. They believe in God. But this phrase, more accurately represented, means that he believed God. Not believing that God exists, but that he believed God. The word, another Hebrew word for you, one of the four, is aman. Look at the definition of it. To build up or support, to be permanent, to lean on. I believe 
this podium will hold me when I lean on it. I believe this floor is solid. I didn't fall through to the basement. I believe because I've built up confidence. I've had experience walking on this floor. Okay? I've had experience leaning on this podium. So don't use the word real loosely when you're talking to a friend who doesn't have the same level of faith that you have about believing in God because perhaps you've walked with him longer. Perhaps you've had more opportunity to lean into God. At this point, Abram's had a lot of opportunity to lean into God and he knows that he can believe, he can aman him. You use this word all the time and you don't even know it. Father, we ask that you would bless this. Aman. It's the root word from which we get the word amen. You're saying at the end of your prayer, God, I believe. I can lean into you. I can trust you with this. I'm amoning you. You can lean your whole weight upon it. Okay, verse 7. God followed up his believing with some affirmation now. And this is cool. I love, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Yahweh. I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. I am Jehovah. I am the covenant-keeping God. Yahweh was so anointed that the Jewish people would not only not say it, they would not even write it. They would put Y-H-V-H and leave the vowels out. Yahweh, I am Yehovah. And you can trust me. And I'm going to give you this land and you're going to possess it. Verse 8. He said, O Lord God, how may I know? He's still got questions. You see this? He's talking to Yehovah. And he's still got questions. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And you begin to think, uh-oh, somebody's going to get barbecued. Then he brought all these to him and cut, cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. This is more like a shopping list for a witch doctor. You don't expect God to put some kind of concocted potion together and take away Abram's fears, do you? This is something that is very ancient that you see described here. And I want you to get a good picture in your mind of what's going on when God said, bring me these animals. Because you read right in the midst of that passage that Abram knew immediately what to do with it. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two. How did Abram know what to do with those animals? This is an ancient custom among the people of the Middle East that when they write a contract, a covenant, 
that they have to sacrifice an animal. Now, normally, there's only one animal that's killed for this purpose because without the shedding of blood, the contract is no good. So God said, more than just bringing me a cow, bring me a goat, bring me a lamb, bring me the birds. And this is what Abram does throughout the day. Now remember, he spent the night looking at the stars with God. This is daytime. Now he begins digging a trench on this side and digging a trench on this side. Takes the animals, cuts them in half, takes one half of the animal, leans it on this side of the trench. This is really gory. Takes the other animal, half, leans it on this side so that all the blood from the animals will run down into the trench. This is a very solemn occasion. There's four different types of covenant referred to in the Old Testament. This one is the most solemn. It's called the royal grant. And only a king can participate in the royal grant covenant. Now, what's unique about this particular covenant, not only that Abram knows exactly what to do, but that he sits in the afternoon sun waiting for God to show up because up until this point, he has every sense of expectation that God is going to show up and walk through these carcasses with him. Here's the purpose for it. Carcasses on this side, carcasses on this side. The two parties of the covenant would walk through the carcasses together, repeating the covenant. And at the end of the trench, they would turn and say to each other, may it happen to me as it happened to these animals if I fail to keep my side of the promise. This one would turn to say, May it happen to me as it happened to these animals if I do not keep my side of the promise. They knew that this was a life and death commitment. This still takes place today in the Bedouin tribes in the Middle East. When a young bride is given to a young man in childhood, the fathers walk down the side of the animal together and they make a vow. My daughter belongs to your son. My son belongs to your daughter. It's a very solemn occasion. Now, here's another Hebrew word I want you to get down. The word is karath, a primitive root to cut down or asunder, specifically to covenant, to make an alliance or a bargain. That word's important because it comes a little later, but think of it in this term. God cut a covenant. Americans use this phrase, we cut a deal in business. That's where it comes from, to cut an agreement, to cut a deal, to cut a covenant. This is what's described as cutting a covenant, and God is the one making it. I said to you, up to this point, Abram's got every sense of expectation that God is going to walk through the carcasses with him until verse 12 unfolds. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, if you look closely, you see that the sun is still up. It says, now when the sun was going down, this is at dusk. The sun is still on the horizon. The vultures are still circling above. And he's getting very sleepy. And he goes into a state known as Tardema. 
Tardema is a word that is used to represent what happened for Adam in the garden when God was about to create Eve. When God appeared to Daniel, the word Tardema was used when he spoke to him. God put the ancients into a state of Tardema because they could not handle his appearance or his presence. It was so powerful and overwhelming. God allowed them to be in a semi-state of consciousness called Tardema. And that's what happens to Abram at this moment. Verse 13, God said to Abram, so now God has shown up, and he's about to reveal to him what's going to happen to the promise. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 400 years in advance, God's predicting what's going to happen to the children of Israel. And the next is a promise to Abram, verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. He lived to be 175 years of age, and then he rested with his fathers. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set. Now it's getting dark. Sun's gone. No longer above the horizon. That it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. You may have read this story before, especially if you were raised in church, you've heard this story before, but I'm not sure you have an accurate understanding of what's going on here. This is where the English language fails us miserably. So the only way I can help you to understand it is by looking at some other passages of Scripture where God is referred to as a smoking oven or a smoking furnace. Look on the screen at Exodus 19.18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Deuteronomy 4, 11 and 12. You came near, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only voice. What you have appearing here is God in the pillar of smoke, the Shekinah glory that led the children of Israel through the desert every day for 40 years. This is a powerful image. And underneath it is this flaming torch and it's the same imagery that's used to describe Jesus in the book of Revelation when he appears as the bright and shining one among the lampstands and when he's called by John the light of the world. This is the torch Jesus with the pillar of smoke, God. And what does he do according to this verse? There appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Now, Abram is in a state of Tardema watching this. And this giant image appears and moves through the carcasses alone. There's a condition under the royal grant, under this kind of covenant, 
an unconditional covenant by which only one party participates and one stays off to the side and has no role in it. God went through and made the covenant saying, I take all responsibility for the fulfilling of this covenant. You have no role in it. Royal Grant allowed for that. State of Tardema, Abram sees all this, but is not participating in this. Abram never signed the contract. God signed it for both of them. Now look at this final verse, 18. On that day, the Lord made Korath, God cut a covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The most western branch that he refers to is the Nile River, the western branch of the Nile Delta in Egypt. The most eastern boundary he gives him is the Euphrates River. Has Israel ever occupied all of that land yet? Never. The covenant has not yet been fulfilled. But you can believe that if God made the covenant and made the promise, it will happen. Because if they had inherited all that land, what would they own today? All the oil of the world. But Israel does not. It's left with a narrow strip. Under King Solomon, he ruled over some of it. But only in homage from the kings who lived in those territories. He didn't rule over and control all of it. Now, we can come to a state of doubting that God will fulfill his promises. Much like a theologian whom I highly respect back in 1932, doubted God's covenant. Read this quote from G. Campbell Morgan. I am now quite convinced that the teaching of Scripture as a whole is that there is no future for Israel as an earthly people at all. That's in 1932. G. Campbell Morgan is a highly respected theologian, but he came to the point where he doubted whether or not God ever intended to do what he was promising in Scripture. Until when? Until May 14, 1948. And Israel, to the shock of the entire world, was once again reestablished as a nation. And now, you may not have known this, young people, especially in here, if you haven't studied this. Prior to 1948, Israel had no control over where they live today. They were not a nation. Today, they are reestablished. Setting up the timeline for the reappearance of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a fulfillment of God's covenant. Now, remember, God invoked the blood penalty upon himself. When he made these agreements, these covenants in the Old Testament, when he did them as unconditional covenants, he's saying, I take responsibility for the fulfillment of these promises. With that in mind, I want you to read a verse that might be very familiar to you from the New Testament. It's from Matthew 26 and the verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The new covenant established by Jesus Christ, dependable whether people believe it or not. The new covenant, Jesus is saying, I'm taking it all on me. You stay off to the side. There is nothing you can do to make this fulfilled. I am the one shedding my blood, going to the cross for the fulfillment of Scripture as a sacrifice for many. Jesus became the seal of the new covenant. He fulfilled everything that God called him to do. Now with all that in mind, all that you've just learned in the last 30 minutes, think of this promise again. It is the nature and character of God to provide a way independent of us. Our responsibility is to aman, to believe. So Peter is standing before a bunch of escaped convicts. He's in a jail cell. This is a New Testament story in Acts. And Peter stands before all these escaped convicts and saying, let's not leave, even though we can. The jail keeper comes in and says, why didn't you guys escape? You familiar with this story? What does he respond to the jail keeper when the jail keeper said, what must I do to be saved? Because you guys are so amazing, I can't believe how you trust God. What must I do to be saved? Peter responds to him what? Aman in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lean into him. Anybody in this room today that's never amand Jesus Christ that would like to talk with me about that? I'm here for you. This is the greatest decision you will ever make in the course of your life. These young people standing up here today, they're amoning Jesus. They're trusting God. They're going out with their lives to serve him. You want to know more about how to do that? I would be thrilled to talk with you about that. How can you amon Jesus? How can you lean into him? Because his promises are sure, even when they look like they're going to fail, he always comes through. And he is coming again. He said he was, and he's going to do it. Would you pray with me? Father, this time's gone way too fast. But we've enjoyed being able to look deeply into your word and understand more of your nature and character. Father, I ask for myself, as well as each man and woman and child in this room, that every time we get together, we would understand more of your nature and character so that we can be more in the likeness of your son, Jesus. We want to conform to you, Father. Help us to do that. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have an excellent week.